there was no really well-defined outcome that the U.S. or the international community was looking for. And they certainly, I don't think, checked too much with the Afghan people. What would you like the outcome to be? Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast, where we show you how to turn your unique passion into a strategy to change the world. Today's episode is a bit different. Ed sits down with a panel to discuss America's involvement in Afghanistan as a case study on impact. Multiple impact principles from the book Journey to Impact are touched on in this conversation, and I hope it gives you insight and wisdom that you can apply to your own impact journey. It's time to get off the bench. Let's do this. Here's your host, Ed Gillentine. Welcome to this special edition of the Journey to Impact podcast. We're calling it Lessons in Perspective on Impact in Afghanistan. I'm your host, Ed Gillentine, and I'm joined today with three people with three uniquely different perspectives on Afghanistan, and I am really excited to hear what they have to say. But before we introduce everybody, I want to set the framework for our conversation. What we've all seen the past 20 or 25 years as it relates to the changing tides in Afghanistan is really fascinating and maybe unprecedented. We've all had, to a greater or lesser degree, a front row seat to some massive shifts and changes. The rise of the Taliban, for example, their fall, the liberalization of the social and political and economic construct in Afghanistan, and now recently the rise again of the Taliban and the chaotic exit of the U.S.-led coalition. And all of this has been documented and videoed and recorded, maybe to an extent never before seen. And for this podcast, um, we want to focus on impact. We want the conversation to center around impact. That is, what is impact and how can we have it? So that'll be our focus today. And with all of the data out there and, you know, everybody's got a personal opinion, there's, there's a lot of really, really smart people that are giving their thoughts and opinions. And so with all of that, What can we learn about the past 25 years or so in Afghanistan? So that'll be the the point of the podcast. Not, I should say this, what political system or political ideology is the best, although that's important. Not which economic system is the best, although that's important too. And we're not talking about which religious ideology or religion is the best, although that comes into play. It is about the perspective of the Afghan people. It is about understanding what went right and what went wrong from multiple perspectives. And it is about learning from the past and moving forward to greater positive impact in the future. I think it's also worth mentioning that over the past several weeks, as Afghanistan has dominated every news cycle that I've watched, it's triggered a lot of emotions on all sides and from all perspectives. Especially, I would say, if you're an Afghan, and especially if you served in the U.S. military during the war in Afghanistan. So we're going to do our best to have a discussion that acknowledges that we have emotions, right? But we're not going to be driven, hopefully, by emotions. And secondly, we want to do our best to stay away from politics. It's not the intent of this podcast, or is it within our expertise to adequately discuss it. So if you hear anything like that, I say this to our listeners, it's definitely unintentional. And then finally, we're not challenging the motives of the many, many people who have tried to help in Afghanistan, both Afghan, uh, U.S., all over the world. 
We may challenge their methods. We will almost certainly challenge their effectiveness and some of the outcomes, but we're going to leave the judging of motives to God. So with all that being said, let me introduce our guests. First, we have Latif, who's from Afghanistan and has traveled the wide world since 2007. And Latif, I think if I heard you right, 2007 to India, then a few years later to Indonesia, and then Australia, and then the last couple of years he's resided in the U.S. with his family. And uh, so, welcome. Thank you. Then we've got Cindy, who's been heavily involved in impact philanthropy, in aid and development and social entrepreneurship in Afghanistan for the past 20 years or so. Her medical background as a nurse and also her husband's medical background as a doctor have really played an important part in what they do. They've been involved in medical trips all over the world, trips to help the underserved, but I think it's safe to say their heart is in Afghanistan. In the early 2000s, they were approached by some senior government officials in Afghanistan to help them with leadership training because that was non-existent in the country at that time. And since that time, they've been heavily involved in that arena. So, Cindy, welcome. Thank you. And finally, Dr. Harry Jones, who's a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. He spent a significant amount of time deployed to Afghanistan during the presidential surge in 2010 and 2011 as the XO for an aviation task force. After that, he returned to the U.S. to get his Ph.D. in philosophy at the University of Virginia, and he spent the next seven years teaching the next generation of officers at West Point. Currently, Harry focuses on leadership and team development and strategy, and he also serves as an associate fellow at the Oxford Character Project. Harry, welcome. Thanks for having me. We're going to dive right in. And Latif, I want to start with you, brother, if you don't mind. Afghanistan is a beautiful country with beautiful people. So tell us a little bit about the culture and the people to give us some perspective that will shape this conversation. Thank you. Of course, Afghanistan is a beautiful country and beautiful people. A lot of kind of people and hospitality people are live in Afghanistan. It's a different part of Afghanistan, almost like a different culture. And the north is, is they have different, and then the south, different. But all together, they're Afghan, and they want to serve people the best as they can. And if, if the guys come to their home, like they want to give almost everything the best to them before they, they do their, their own or their, to their children. And the other culture, it's, of course, uh, Afghanistan is... It's a Muslim country. It's a mostly like religious culture. It's moving and it's controlling. Almost most of Arabic culture also involved in Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. And as a child growing up there, were you, did you grow up in more of a rural area or would you consider that more of, uh, I guess, a metropolitan? Uh, actually, uh, I grew up in been a normal family and rural area and of course the place I I grew up I I'm from Hazara tribe and I grew up it between Hazara and Taliban uh, sorry Pashtun mm-hmm. where is a lot of uh, Pashtun our our neighbors and that's kind of like when I grew up I uh, my father used to taught me that we are different than them and it's some sometimes is like the hatness and the uh, the bitterness is grow up in my heart. 
about the Pashtun people. And I believe that in, this, in the Pashtun people also the same thing. They grow up in, in yes. the past 40 years. That's interesting. Really fascinating. Cindy, um, what drew you to Afghanistan? You've been over there a lot the past 20 years. What was the draw? I think it was right after 9-11, and my husband and I were watching a TV special on the women, and just seeing the plight of the woman there, it just really hit me hard. So then it was we had an opportunity with these Afghan diplomats that did come to Memphis to interact with them. The deputy minister of health stayed in our home and his advisor. So we got, for five days, we got to host them and just kind of learn a little bit about the country. I didn't even know where it was. It was just in that group of stands. So that was in um, October of 2002, and the very next month they had asked us if we would come to Kabul and let them show us their medical community, their school system, and um, there was no leadership at that time. So going and looking at the culture, that was my very first introduction to Afghanistan. And like Latif said, I think one thing that really hit hard was their hospitality and how, you know, when you have someone come to your home, you say, what would you like? Would you like coffee? Would you like tea? Well, they just bring everything, you know, put it at your feet. But looking at um, people's faces as you drive through the city, instead of looking at the destruction that was there or the graveyard of aircraft that was left behind from years of war, but looking into the faces of people and um, just wondering what their story is because they each have a story. Right. And that was the initial draw. And then we took a team of people in February of medical people. That was our first introduction to the country. So kind of a follow-up question of that. When Liz and I first went to Ethiopia, we were kind of drawn by the plight of the street children. You have the faces, you have the stories, um, but it's the plight that draws you. And then after you spend some time over there, you realize, wow, they have a lot that they're giving me. There's a lot of smart people. There's a lot of talented people. It's not just the, the plight that we see on the news. Did you experience that over the years of being there? Oh, for sure. And a lot of it is just taking that time to um, build relationships. Language was always a barrier, and unfortunately, I still don't speak the local language. Sorry, Latif. But building relationships and having, uh, they would invite us into their homes yeah. and just seeing the family dynamics and them wanting to have a relationship with us. And it wasn't like we are their token American to show off or us to have our token Afghan to show off, but it was really trying to build a relationship. Yeah. And Latif, another follow-up question. Can you tell the difference between the token Westerner that's there maybe to make their resume look better versus Cindy and people like her that really want to help. Could you pick up on that even as a child? Uh, I I don't think because the growing in Afghanistan, but somebody come from Western and uh, sorry, from America or from Europe mm-hmm. into Afghanistan and try to you know teach or try to f- say something that oh you have to live like this or you have to learn in this way. I think it's it's a bit difficult 
in the first to get everything that, oh, this is a very good idea. Right. Um, that's why I say that because most of the people there learn in Afghanistan, it's like through their religions, things is learning Arabic. They have to be, everything specifically has to be under Sharia. And That's if somebody come from uh, America and teach or from Europe, teach something, you know, then the first thing they come to their mind is that, oh, let me check that if they're talking about uh, under our Sharia law or not. Yeah, that's fascinating. I never thought of that perspective and the fact that if you wanted to teach English, you will have to somehow incorporate that into um, the system that's under Sharia law and the Sharia system. So that's fascinating. I've already learned something. So, Harry, how about you? These So Latif was born there, so I guess he didn't really have any choice. Cindy went to to Afghanistan because she was drawn there. Uncle Sam told you to get your butt over there. So tell me your perspective on what the U.S. Army told you to be prepared for and what you actually ran into when you got over there. Yeah, so I was in graduate school. Uh, I knew I was going to finish up in May and go back to a stateside unit. But I didn't know what we'd be up to. So I found out about three months before deploying that I'd be headed to Afghanistan. And of course, I did what any graduate student would do. I bought a stack of books and started doing research. And then got on the ground there and found out that what we needed to do had almost nothing to do with the really interesting stuff that I was learning about culture and history and so forth. Uh, We needed to hurry up and build an aviation footprint to include headquarters and living areas and start flying missions immediately. And so, uh, you know, I went in it with kind of this high-level hearts and minds idea and ended up having a very tactical mission. When you were over there, how fast did you have to build your um, your uh, airfield? Well, or at least till you started flying missions. So we we settled on a location that already had an airstrip, but had no uh, U.S. Uh, rotary wing aviation presence. So we built a footprint. That would be a helicopter for those of you like me that don't know what that means. Right. So we built we built a footprint for helicopters of various sorts, probably forty or fifty, and uh, began flying missions probably within four or five days. Uh, And, of course, we spent the next several months building up that footprint and making it um, suitable for the next unit to come in after us. And so you didn't really have that much close contact with normal Afghan people that are living their everyday life, sort of like Latif's family. That's right. That's right. As an aviator, we did not spend a lot of time outside the wire, as they say on the ground, uh, did a lot of flying, uh, mostly landing at other bases, occasionally remote locations. But no, our primary role was not to interact with the community. Um, and the so reason we, that, we would bring folks yeah. on to the base to say, for example, help build up the headquarters area. Um, and that was interesting um, because, and I, I don't know if this was uh, the norm, but the contractors that came on to build uh, we're working with tools that looked like they were probably out of the 19th century. Everything was by hand. I think we kind of blew their minds when we brought power tools to the table. Right. 
but that's that's the sort of interaction we had not um not drinking tea with the elders sure and and the reason i brought that up is because your task was certainly more administrative or or it didn't require interaction with the afghan people but if you think about us policy as a whole and the men and women that were tasked with drinking tea how long did it take the U.S. leadership to realize that was really important, or do you think maybe that was lip service? They didn't really believe that that was critical to the mission. Yeah, I think it would be hard to generalize um, just about a particular point of view. Suffice it to say, you know, at one point it was the uh, the sort of dominant uh, idea, and there were a number of commanders that probably didn't think it was the best approach. It seems to me that in theory anyway, uh, it's a pretty good approach, at least as a first step, (laughs) uh, rather than jumping right to um, armed conflict. But it also creates uh, attention because the folks that you send to do that have not been trained primarily to have those kinds of interactions and so we really asked a lot, particularly of our young soldiers and sergeants, uh, to sort of be simultaneously warfighter and peacemaker, social worker, all perhaps changing hats within an instant. Yeah, that's fascinating. And another entire podcast. I do want to transition in a little bit um, because of those perspectives Uh, In Journey to Impact, one of the things that's important to me is culture. So no matter where you go in the world, and it could be South Memphis that's, what do you think, Cindy, 10 miles from here? Or it could be rural Ethiopia that I just happen to know is about 7,800 miles from here. Or it could be Afghanistan. Culture is the most important thing I believe that almost any organization gets wrong. Or I should say it this way, if you get it wrong you jeopardize the mission. And so Peter Drucker famously says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. We need to pay attention. And I think when we're trying to have impact and we go into a different culture, we need to spend a lot of time understanding culture. So Latif, when you think back on Afghanistan and you have a really unique perspective, can you just Think out loud with us. Give us your thoughts on all the outside international help coming in. How did they deal with your culture? I just want to share, first of all, like when America or all the other countries try to help Afghanistan and only maybe 60 or 50 percent of Afghanistan, they want that help. But the rest and the Southers, they don't they don't really want Right. And they're against. And also when they went to help, they always try to, you know, approach their power to help them through their power. And they never let Afghan people talk to their Afghan. Like Afghan, they never train well Afghan to go and do your mission. Right. And about the help and about everything, like about the the finance, about their armies, about everything. And they don't let Afghan take responsibility in their own culture. Right. That's why they failed, because they don't 
they don't go through the, their own culture, they are through their own thoughts and through the Afghan itself to give responsible to do their own mission to build their country. That's and interesting. Of course, they, they help a lot of money. They 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 spend a lot of time, and you know, like many armies are die there, and it's it's very sad. It's very sad. So if I'm hearing hearing you correctly, the Westerners will call them because there's a bunch of different countries, yeah. non-Afghan people, coming in to try to help a group of people that at least 50-ish percent of them didn't want any help or certainly didn't see any need for help. And so then the different cultures come in and use power, money, whatever, with the maybe the 50-ish percent that wanted them. They tell them, you need to go do this, and you go convince the other 50% that you guys need to do this stuff. 50% sounds like a huge number to convince if they don't want to be convinced. Did I hear you kind of yes. correctly? Yeah, that's why I said that during these 40 years, like my age is about 37. During these 40 years, all people grow up with this happiness and bitterness. They hate each other, and they has to work through that, like, to right. give them hellness of their heart, to l- love each other, to receive each other, to live peacefully with each other. This is the most probably important for Afghan people. They should accept each other in yeah. Afghanistan. Like what you said, that Afghanistan is a beautiful country. It's a beautiful people. But the things that is like headness and, you know, like a lot of bloodshed there and then the bitterness is inside of their heart, even though the children. And that's like, need a very deeply help, like hellness of the heart. That's fascinating. It's almost like someone that doesn't want to get emotional or psychological or spiritual help. Anything else is a Band-Aid. It's just maybe temporary. We can put all the bridges we want in there. We can provide all the security people, but if you're not dealing with the core issue, um, that's that's fascinating. That That's worth talking. Do you want to add anything to that, Cindy, from what you've seen? I see that Afghanistan culture is very complex, a lot of layers to it. And even as many years as we've been going, I feel like I've just started peeling back the second layer. And it's not a um, complex in that it's a difficult thing. Right. It's just different. And I think going in with that type of attitude of um, how people think is just different. But then also not going in trying to Americanize or Westernize people, but having that attitude of we want to help where you are. And so it was vital, and it still is today, to listen. What is it that they need? What is it they want? And not from an American's perspective. You have to just kind of take that hat off and listen. And sometimes it's hard for them to articulate, but yet um, you don't want to assume anything. So it's not like a quick meeting and they can say, we need this, 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 this. And it's just as if um, someone from another culture came to America and tried to change us. And we're like, what are you trying to do? That's not what we need, not what we want. You know, everyone has their ideas and especially how they've grown up as a child and in their home, they've heard their parents' perspective and their teacher's perspective of what their culture is supposed to be like. If they went to school in a madrasas, then everything is, you know, flowing through the Sharia law. So when you go over to help, 
you've got to take all of those things into account. That's fascinating. Harry, what would you add to um, what Latif and Cindy said? Yeah, just to echo Cindy's point, Afghanistan is um, an incredibly complex landscape. And the complexity uh, is particularly in the uh, combat context is something that I think we haven't uh, experienced in quite this way in previous conflicts, particularly when it comes to criteria for winning, uh, because there wasn't a city or a hill or a line or anything like that, that once we took or crossed, etc., would have counted as winning. It just, the whole landscape was not like that. And so, you know, whatever the right strategy was, it was certainly not simple or linear. And to Latif's point, even if you had the greatest answer in the world, if you come in to help and fundamentally take away the agency of those you're trying to help, it is a kind of disrespect, it's reducing them, it's dehumanizing, um, and you're not, not going to get a lot of support with that kind of help. It's, I mean, it's patronizing in a way. It's yeah. one thing to rescue a child drowning in a swimming pool, right? You take over, you take action, you pull them out. It's another thing to control every aspect of their life after that and tell them what to do, how to think, how to do it and never get input from them as they, as they grow. Not, not that this is a one-for-one one analogy, um, but this idea of we can help, we should help, just the, 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 the population that we perceive needs help actually want it. Right. Uh, because there's even uh, a kind of dignity in, quote, quote, sort of losing on your own, mm-hmm. right? And this mm-hmm. is tricky when it comes to, say, a situation like Rwanda, in the early 90s with the genocide, it feels like somebody has to do something. And yet it's possible that those inside may want to fight it their way, even if it means a worse overall outcome. Right. I like the word agency, and I'm glad you brought that out because the idea of dignity, I like that you use the word patronizing. We come in and say to the Afghan people, this is how to do it. You can't stand on your own two feet. We know how to do that, so just listen to us. Now, we would never do that to um, a human being, maybe that's older than two years old. I don't know. I, sometimes I do that with my kids. But, Latif, when you think about that, maybe maybe add a little color to what Harry said from that perspective of criticism, the dignity and the patronizing, just that probably not a good way to get things done. Yes, like these days you will see about like especially woman right, about speech of uh, like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all freedom of uh, human being, all those things. We cannot apply all fully in Afghanistan and we cannot feed like whatever in America, we cannot feed in Afghanistan because I say that they are under Sharia law. Like especially women these days, they came out on the street and saying things against um, Taliban. Right. They are against the, 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 the Sharia. And because this, during these 20 years, they're growing up with the freedom. They, they learn how to be like a free, but in Sharia law, is 
there is you don't not. Have that. Right. They don't have it. And we cannot support those women there. Like if you support them, oh, you have to do because you're a woman, you're, you have right to say, and we put their life in danger if we try to apply it like American way or Syrian way to apply there, we put their life in danger because they're against their Sharia. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, I appreciate you saying that because women's rights is so fundamental to the Western world. It's like, it's important. And yet in different cultures, it um, expresses itself differently. And you can't change that overnight, first of all. But then you do have this balance of when do you allow, I'll say, maybe well enough to be okay. Um, I don't even know how to wrap my mind around that. That's why we've got a, a PhD in philosophy. But, Cindy, you've got a PhD in practical Afghanistan. Um, kind of piggyback on what Latif said, because women's rights drew you to Afghanistan. I think it's a little bit more than just women's rights of how we see women's rights here right. in the U.S. It's more of um, helping women see that they have value. I love that. And as a person, exactly. whether Sharia law says they do or not, God made everyone equal. In that regard, they have value because I've talked to woman after woman who thinks that they're dirt because that's what they've been told and that um, what they say or think or anything has no value at all. So talking to women to give them some dignity, to give them some honor that they that I, I do want to have a relationship with them because of who they are, not because of who their family represents or their village or anything like yeah. that. And, and I think it's probably worth reminding our listeners who are going to be predominantly U.S. that the United States is not that far removed from male-dominated, still are in many respects, but from women having the freedom that they enjoy today I mean, much of that is less than 50 years old. So I would, yeah, Latif. Yeah, I just want to say thank you, Cindy, John, for what you add about the value of woman. Value, yeah. And, yeah, value. That's, it's very important to tell them that you have, you have value and you're very important. It's not about women only, about men also. Right. In Afghanistan, actually, the, both of them, they don't have value there. They, they kill each other. That's, that's the problem. There's a lot of similarities to rural Ethiopia and um, not just male-female uh, conflict and value, but the idea of humans having value. Um, I don't, you know, the more I think about that, the more that may drive why I'm passionate about it. I mean, my heart breaks for a little girl in Ethiopia that because she doesn't have personal hygiene products, is going to skip school, misses three months a year, can never catch up, and now she's trapped in a continuing cycle of poverty and illiteracy and all those things, right? But I can get just as heartbroken about, and I can see these faces, right, Cindy, in my mind's eyes of men who've been trapped in a similar cycle of 
of multi-generational poverty and because of how they were born or the job they had or whatever, they're dirt. I forget if Latif said that or, or, or Cindy, but they are no more valuable than dirt. And um, that also is an interesting uh, thing that we should wrestle with. I do want to uh, transition to this idea of, of metrics. And uh, Harry and I have talked about this a lot because I feel like, first of all, if you're not asking the right question, you're probably not going to get the right answer. And if you did, you got lucky. If you're measuring the wrong thing, right, we get a little MBA speak going on here. If you're measuring the wrong thing, measuring the wrong output, you're probably not going to get the output or the outcome that you want. So, Harry, talk a little bit about um, metrics from the U.S. military perspective and, and maybe even other, the development work that was going on over there and the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sure. I mean, in the DOD, we have metrics for everything. <laughs> um, and so it's, you know, important to ask, you know, what are we trying to measure and what are we measuring it for? Right. right. We love, you know, love data. We love measuring things. Data for data's sake. We don't always know what to do with the data or what it means. And it can be misleading, right? So, for example, <clears throat> we... We had one subset of the organization that focused on medevac missions. Right? They were always on call. They were fantastic. They could respond in a heartbeat. And you might look at a month's worth of data and say, oh, look, we did 100 successful missions this month. We saved some lives. Isn't this great? Yes, in a way. Uh, but it would have been better if we had zero. Right. Because no one needed it. Right. And I think one of the challenges early on, and this goes back to this idea of a, a complex uh, situation that was Afghanistan and a complicated situation, right? So a, a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle is complicated, but you're patient and you sit there long enough, you'll figure it out. It's linear. All the pieces go together. Establishing security in Afghanistan is complex. Right. And in complex problems, there aren't right and wrong answers so much as better and worse trade-offs. Mm -hmm. And so subsequently, measuring success is difficult, particularly, and I think this is kind of the big one, what does it mean to win? In, our, in the military's case, what was the criteria after which it was achieved? We could say, well, we've won, the mission is complete, and now we can uh, walk away. Not clear to me that that was ever articulated right um, and when you have that you're, you're sort of putting your putting yourself in a, a perpetual place of well we can always do a little bit more right yeah. and I think that's part of why we are where we are with the recent events um, and and the kind of seeming situation of uh, 20 years of effort undone in a few months so Cindy I'm gonna come I want to hear your thoughts on this um, metrics in a minute and how to measure stuff from a, um, a non-military point of view. But Harry, I would like, I'd be curious if, uh, if you won't get tried for a court-martialed or whatever happens for treason, what was the dumbest metric that you recall the United States Army metricking? Uh, Let's put you on the spot here. <laughs> that's a Your retirement question. is safe, right? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. So I probably can't um, name one that I could back up with documents somewhere 
um, partly because they're all on computers that got left over there and no one has access to. <laughs> this is not a, a new problem. Uh, we used to have the body count for Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It's just a really stupid, naive metric. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a way to measure are we achieving the primary objective. Right. Um, it's a way of measuring how many people got killed today. Yeah. Which is not uh, terribly meaningful or useful in the in the big picture. And so, I- anything that served as sort of a s- distraction to celebrate. I, I would categorize under that either waste of time to measure mm-hmm. or just measuring the wrong thing. Right. Right. And it, but it can give the appearance of impact. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. you can think of a lot of examples in, in other cases yeah. where, where we quote, quote, did all these things. Mm-hmm. And so we obviously made progress or had success, but in the bigger picture, it yeah. didn't last or, uh, it was for the wrong people or the wrong yeah. reasons, et cetera. That's perfect. And uh, it's a little bit, to me, like a nonprofit measuring how much money they raised. Okay, that's fantastic. But how many uh, how many dollars or what was the outcome of the money raised? So, Cindy, you probably got to see this up close and personal, Latif. I, I'm curious your perspective in a minute, too. But how much money... Have you seen flowing into Afghanistan from your perspective as a fundraiser and a deployer of capital that was not helpful at all? Our nonprofit, it's all donations. We have no um, employees, so it makes it easy. It's because you do all the work? Yes. Um, So every dollar that comes in, we put straight toward projects. the biggest projects that we've done are leadership development and our hospice program. So I can tell you good stories with good outcomes, and I can tell you a lot of stories with not so good outcome. And it's hard to measure success, especially with leadership, as you know. So it's more like when you um, are setting up a leadership class, and these are all in the government for the most part. We've done some university students as well. But the government, I would visit the um, minister of whatever ministry it was, foreign affairs or health or whatever, and tell them what we're going to do. And I'd say, I want people that are already in leadership positions to come to the class, which makes sense to me. But we would get a class, and I would always top it off, let's have like 20 to 25 people so we can get to know them and invest in their lives We'd get there, and there'd be 40, 50 people, and some of them could not even tell me their position that, you know, what they were working. And some of them were even a deputy minister would come and attend. So how do you measure that, what they've really learned, and what are they going to be able to put into practice? So um, the next time we would go, we would always have at least three classes with the same group of people. And sometimes it was they were there because they wanted their certificate with a stamp on it to add to their resume. Right. And that's all they were there for, or they were told to go. And they had to be there. The others um, would come back and tell us stories. Our translator, every time we would come back, he would say, 
I went back to my job. I put into practice some of the things that you taught, and I got a raise, and I got promoted. And, I mean, that happened to this same man about four or five times in a row. So that's something I could measure and mm-hmm. see. And um, But for the most part, they wanted their certificate with a stamp on it. Yeah, I've experienced that in Africa and the countries we worked in. Um, there was a recent Wall Street Journal article, I want to say about um, maybe 28 or $40 billion that they documented was wasted deployed to Afghanistan, you know, metal detectors that didn't really function and stuff like that, which candidly, I thought $48 billion, and I'm not being a smart aleck, I didn't think that was bad for, I mean, I can't imagine how much money internationally has been pumped into Afghanistan. I didn't think that was a very bad miss. You know, I don't want to be wasting money, but money is typically not a very good metric. Um, Latif, when you think about metrics and and how to measure success or failure um, in Afghanistan, in the culture, and even I'd like for you maybe to think about education, how how would you even begin to approach it? Just maybe think out loud. Uh, about measuring about how much money you go there, how about the leadership, about like American coming out, about all those things because they never measure before they go there. They just go there. Yeah. Never measure that. If they think that, oh, 3,000 people will die there, an army, they will never go back. If they think that, oh, we will leave Afghanistan in this way, they will never go back. They never go to Afghanistan. But they just go without measuring. And also what uh, Mr. Harry said that about when they go there, they don't have any connection with uh, local people. Right. Because they don't know what's going on there. A lot of money go there, a lot of money go there, but they give the project to Afghan. And Afghan just go and then sign the paper and say, oh, we did. But um, like foreign people, actually, physically, they never been to the project that they really done Never or checked not. on it. Yeah, they never checked on because they have no connection with the local people. The money just go to the air, never go to the people. Wow. We don't know where the money is go. It's many, many money is lost in Afghanistan yeah. because they, they, they do not measure. That's well. fascinating. Yeah. I never thought about when do you start measuring, right? We, in our line of work, we talk about calendaring periods, right? So you can make an investment look good or bad simply by moving the calendaring period. So when you don't know when to start, that's challenging. Can I just add one other thing? On yeah, metrics? please do. Yeah, so in our kind of data of obsessive culture, I feel like there's a, a one approach that says if you uh, can't measure it, it's not important. Right. And I think it's probably the reverse. The most important things are, are the hard hardest to measure. To measure. Right. And so it's not that you can't say anything and or not that we shouldn't try, but the metrics for helping in Afghanistan uh, are much harder to come up with and to track than something like if you and I decided to uh, improve our push-ups over the next three months. Right. Right. I could go from three to seven and that'd be great. <laughs> it's a hundred and something percent increase. Well, whatever it is. 
measuring it would be pretty easy. But something like how much do you love your kids or your leadership training, let's say there was a, a woman in your training that went back home to raise her kids. It may be tremendously impactful and also not at all obvious by a promotion, a raise, or any of the normal metrics. And that leads me to a rabbit trail. That uh, So one of my favorite books is When Helping Hurts by Dr. Brian Fickert. Uh, the title, if you, listen, if you think about the title, you're going to get a lot of the message. But how many times have we all tried to do something good and ended up hurting the person we were trying to help or the group we were trying to help? And so I think about, Cindy, relative to metrics and what you've seen in Afghanistan and other places around the world, was that a problem in, in your years of observation and activity in Afghanistan, trying to help but ending up hurting for various reasons? Yes, and it can be as simple as trying to give them things. Right. And um, a lot of people here in the U.S. would say, here, take all this stuff over there, stuff over there. And then when you leave and if something breaks, there's no way to fix it. They don't have the means to do that, and it, so it's just an inanimate object. doesn't help at all. If you can do things tangible of food distributions or something, giving them blankets or clothes or those just basic objects that you need for daily living, those are better. But leaving them with things that they can't use, it's just kind of wasting the time. Latif, from your perspective, let's follow up what Cindy talked about. I, I suspect you've seen clothes being given to other Afghans, maybe even to yourself, or equipment or things like that. What what would be the Afghan perspective on that? I mean, is there ever, we don't even need this stuff and they're bringing it over here. What is this, going back to patronizing, but what's a perspective on that? Yes, many Afghan, uh, I think they would not accept because they think that we are not poor, you know. Right. <laughs> you have everything. Why you bring clothes? Bring us money. Why you bring us food? Because in the culture they live, they think that if somebody give you food or clothes, means that you're very poor. You don't have anything to, you know, uh, to have. To provide for yourself. Provide, right. yeah. And that's why they feel... You put shame on them. Yeah. You feel, they feel shame. Uh, I think many people will not accept uh, anyone the cash money. If they if we give, you, give them cash money, they will happy. Because then you don't pile that shame on, and they can, in a sense, they could go take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you said that because I almost asked you, well, what would be, within the Afghan culture, the best way to help? And um, that... Uh, idea of giving cash, which kind of makes me laugh thinking about what the U.S. military would be thinking. Well, we can't give them dollar bills. God forbid they might burn those up. Or, but you can't do an ATM card, right? Because there's no ATMs. And yet, what a simple fix, right? Instead of flying stuff all over the country, giving food and supplies, which in, I, I'm not trying to oversimplify. There were times that was needed, I know. Yeah. But for the most part, 20 years later, would a cash subsidy have been the best way to allow people to keep their dignity, take care of them, 
grow in their appreciation even for the U.S. That's that's really fascinating, and I think it's a classic example of when helping hurts. Yeah, I'm talking about personally, like if you give clothes or food to the personal right people, not to the government. Of course, in this time of uh, Taliban, Afghanistan desperately needs for right. food and clothes Blankets. and everything. Blankets, right. yeah. Yeah. It was interesting, Latif, you brought up poverty, which is one of my favorite subjects, because nobody ever really tries to define what poverty is, right? We think of it as being economic, right? But poverty, I found around the world, particularly in multi-generational poverty, is more relational than it is physical. Um, Let's transition back to the idea of doing no harm. So when I think about impact and maybe, for example, going to to Ethiopia and we want to help street kids, how can we do it without causing harm, the whole helping hearts idea? And we've already talked about this, but the first thing that I want to do typically is try to understand the culture. But then you get to, okay, we have these strategies. We think we understand the culture. Um, How do we do it in a way that doesn't help? So, for example... The UN says $2 a day is the, anything below that's the poverty level. I would argue that at least where we work in southern Ethiopia, that if we paid our workers $2 a day, we'd wreck the local economy, right? It's really small. It's rural. It's a village of maybe 500 families. If we're going to employ, you know, 50% of those families and we raise their wages up to $2 a day, then the other families that don't get $2 a day are in trouble economically. So when you guys think about um, doing no harm, and Cindy, I'll just start with you. How have you guys wrestled with that with your organizations in Afghanistan or, or elsewhere in the world? Are you speaking of just on the economic level or anything? Any level, any perspective, yeah. Um, we have a hospice project that we've started, and it's the only one in the whole country still, and that's been after 10 years. So giving them money to purchase medicines or instead of bringing in medicines from the U.S., because once they finish that medicine, you can't duplicate it. You know, it's not at the corner Mm -hmm. market. And so finding a, a medicine that they can go and refill, it's local, but something that's not going to break their bank. Right. Because most of these, uh, and you'll appreciate this, they're in Dusty Barchi. So it's a Hazara area and it's very poor generally. Our patients are. And so going in, the helping without hurting, because the culture, going back to culture again, mm-hmm. um, the neighbors will see someone coming in to help take care of the loved one. And the neighbors are like, you mean you can't take care of mama? What's the matter with your family? Why do you have to have an outsider come and take care of your loved one that's sick? So it, it again, culture kind of trumps everything, and then you don't want to hurt them. Sure. And so relative to that specific example, how long did it take you to figure that out? We talked about it even as we were um, forming this thing, but it took us about three years to actually get the project off the ground because of these types of things and talking to Afghans and having a a group 
to um, help us through these cultural things, as well as getting permission from the Ministry of Health. Latif, would you add anything to that perspective? Yeah, just my opinion with this, that to not her, I mean, you should find a trustworthy person and find friendship and relationship to know them and you can trust them and work through local people. And that's, I think, the best too. And as you've been around the globe in different cultures, would you say that's probably wise no matter what culture you're in? Yeah, it's no matter. Yeah. I think it's anywhere we go, we have to find the trustworthy, someone we can trust them and like be accountable with them and they can do their own project. and Right. Accountability and trust is very important. I would think that takes time, right? Yes. And I know from the U.S. perspective, uh, rightly or wrongly, we're typically coming in Next question I want to talk about is beware the rich know-it-all, right? We're coming in sort of as the patronizing savior, right? And so there is a sense that who can we trust? But I would maybe argue that when you, I think, Latif, you said this earlier, when you lead with money and power, you're probably attracting less than trustworthy people. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's hard to know who you can trust. I think God was good to us in Ethiopia. We had no money, so we wandered around looking for opportunities for you know five or six years. And after about four or five years, those people that were just looking for money, they had realized we were hopeless. And so then we knew who we could trust, and that's how we ended up actually working through people. So that's interesting coming from your perspective, Latif. Um, and I think there's a lot of wisdom there from from my perspective. Harry, what would you add to that? Well, just to clarify, uh, do no harm is an excellent principle, um, not a classic principle of just war theory. Uh, because True. it wouldn't work in a war context. Um, now, that said, uh, it is imperative to try to achieve the ends of war with the least amount of harm possible. So it's, it's certainly not a license to harm gratuitously. But in the context that we're talking about, um, I think uh, Cindy and Latif both bring up great examples of inadvertently harming with what otherwise seems like great help. So I really love the example Latif gave of you know trying to give the basics, food, clothing, and such, seems so obvious to us. And yet you are bringing shame on a family, which presumably no one wants to do on purpose. Um, So that's bad. And then the point about uh, leaving objects that can't be repaired, uh, I'm afraid this is probably what's going to happen to the aircraft that we've given to the the Afghans. Uh, The easy part is buying airplanes and helicopters and sending them there. The second easiest part is training pilots. Anybody can learn to fly. The hard part is maintaining them. And we have a gigantic ecosystem to maintain our aircraft in the U.S. military. And so what help is it if you can fly it for a few months and then it sits forever? So I think both of those were good examples of it seems obvious that these are good things, um, but they're very short-sighted, 
or very inattentive to how that kind of help is received by the recipient in context. So your intuition about starting with culture, I think, is right. Um, there's a an approach to problem solving called human-centered design that starts with the end user. And I think yeah. this is this resonates here. So we found a lot of different countries would donate medical supplies, you know, a big MRI machine. Well, they don't realize they have no electricity right. in this hospital, <laughs> right. you know, or x-rays or incubators, things that would be great for them to have, but they had no electricity. So, I think, you know, from an economic perspective, I think about what you just said, and I thought, what a fantastic way to grow an economy in Afghanistan. Got these big old planes and fancy helicopters, and they need a bunch of people, an ecosystem to take care of them, which means jobs, which means money coming in, um, a hard currency from outside the country, all these fantastic ideas. And I'll make an analogy to um, Ethiopia. We thought by putting this apple orchard smack in the middle of rural Ethiopia, we knew we were going to need fertilizer. We knew we were going to need fences. We knew we were going to need all these ancillary projects. And we had this brilliant idea that the Ethiopians are going to be great. We're going to start our own businesses. But Ethiopians, within that culture, they don't do entrepreneurship. That's just their schools are kind of very rote. They don't train them to think problem-solving, uh, which is a tremendous tr problem trying to raise up a workforce. Um, and also in their defense, why would you go get training that may take you two or three years? You could have like three regime changes in that time. Right. So why are you building something that's going to take five, 10 years to come to fruition? Um, and I hear people say Ethiopians are lazy. They're not smart. No, they're some of the smartest people I've ever run into. They're some of the hardest working people I've ever run into. I look at just walking up some of those mountains in Afghanistan. And I'm like, I don't think there's a lazy human in, in Afghanistan. Right. Or you would die. <laughs> but um why would you go through the training to learn how to put together a helicopter if, for example, it's not going to work or there's regime change and you're going to lose your job anyway, and potentially, if you pick the wrong side, you could die? Um, is that kind of a, a reasonable understanding, Latif, of, of maybe how Afghans would think about that? Yes. I wouldn't want to say they're exactly like Ethiopians because everybody's different. But uh, I can tell you when, when us financial nerds start trying to say this is how you, uh, you help people, you got to reel us back in because we forget all these cultural things. And there's this thing in economics called the rational man. Uh, I think um, homo economicus, I think, which is everybody acts in their best interest. Doesn't happen, right? I've never met a perfectly rational human being. So those are that's really good insight. Yeah, but you do raise a good point about incentives and incentive structures. Right? Mm -hmm. um, when we look at what's happened in Afghanistan, I've heard some people say, well, they won't fight for themselves or, well, they won't do this or that. Um, but it's really hard to appreciate the massive shift in incentives from – two years ago, 10 years ago, right? It's one thing to volunteer to be trained as a pilot, 
by U.S. forces when everyone's still around and it's stable. It's another thing when suddenly you're the target. You're on a short list of people to eliminate because you have this skill now. Um, I think a lot of us would make very different decisions under the right set of perverse incentives. I'm going to go back to, I think, Latif, you said something along the ideas of taking ownership in agency, and that's connected, right? If you take ownership, it's different. But let's be careful criticizing why people don't take ownership, because we don't understand the pressures, the the life-threatening dangers, I think, on their lives. Yeah, and it's hard for us to appreciate also what it's like to make decisions when you're you're reduced back to fighting for the most basic human rights. Right. I need to eat, I need a shelter, and I need safety. Right when that's your focus, the different paradigm does not seem very important. Mm-hmm. And then even back to culture again. What does your father say? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. What does your father say is okay for you to do? Talk about that for a minute, Latif. From being from that culture, how important is that for your father, grandfather, to approve? Oh, I don't know if it's right to say or not. Like, I read Bible. In biblical, God has a power, God has a reach, and he can do everything. But he came as a human being to understand the culture. He came to the culture. He loved all the culture. God loves every culture with his power. And he tried to make friendship with every human being to understand them. What um, Harry says that about the appreciate, like now... I can say that Afghans are not appreciated of, of, of uh, America. With this lot of money going in, but they're not happy. They're not happy because the, the money did not go to the right place, to the right person, to the right work, to the right project. It's money just go wherever right. people take. You know, like, that's why now they are thinking that during these 20 years, and all many people killed, American army are killed, and we are not happy that they are killed there. And, and we are we are really mm, heartbroken for them. They came to save us, but they died there. But at the same time, there's not benefit. But the country go back again to the same place where they were. That's the things that what you said about the father, about the culture, and they did not did their, their job in the right way. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. They cannot right. change. Yeah. Which is fascinating. At some point, you do have to look at an outcome. And I think going back probably to what Harry was saying, there was no really well-defined outcome that the U.S. or the international community was looking for. And they certainly, I don't think, checked too much with the Afghan people. What would you like the outcome to be? Yeah, like example, if... This much money go to Afghanistan. Like if uh, American government said, okay, I was gonna give every person in Afghanistan can got uh, get like um, one million dollar. Just think about that. If everyone get one millions, it's more less than they use money, and everyone rich there is it will be work <laughs> the yeah. way they do. <laughs> yep, yep, that's fascinating. So let's talk about we got a complex situation. 
When you're involved in impact or life in general, you never get it just right. But there are real needs. This idea we talked about valuing human life and how does that express itself with women, with children, with education, with the arts, all these different things. But sometimes you get paralyzed. I've seen lots of people that I really want to help, but I'm afraid I'm going to screw it up, right? So, Cindy, can you talk about, well, if you if someone came and asked you, what should I do, Cindy? I want to help in Afghanistan. Or I want to help in Ethiopia. I want to help in uh, South Memphis or, or wherever it is. But I just can't. F- I'm afraid I'm going to screw it up. What would you say? You probably will. At some point, you, you will do something that um, you will regret, but it's okay. People are people, and it's okay to say, hey, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that, but teach me. That's so a great go answer. to the go to the people and listen, learn from them, and ask them, ask questions. I think I'm the queen of questions, and that's how you're going to learn. Again, with complex problems, there's no right or wrong answer so much as better and worse ways to make progress. And in those cases, you don't want to let perfection be the enemy of good or good enough. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times it's better to do something than nothing. Um, But kind of to the point that keeps coming up, um, one, be humble and approach those that you perceive to be in need to test your assumptions, to get to know them, uh, to find out what it is they actually need. Sometimes what people articulate they need isn't what they actually need, and sometimes vice versa. Um, So in in most of the cases we're talking about, there's probably someone, some organization already helping. I mean, start there. Don't reinvent the wheel. Don't reinvent the wheel. Um, but this, you know, kind of a broader point on just generally starting. Uh, think of it as an iterative process where you're going to learn along the way what works. Uh, try not to make all the mistakes that somebody else made, right? But sometimes you can't know until you try. And you have that one-on-one conversation and you realize, oh, this actually is causing shame, not meeting a basic need. What's a better way to meet that need? Uh, I would love to see a kind of a collaborative effort where, in a way, you you give those in need the conceptual tools and resources to solve their own problems. So help in providing uh, sort of systems and structures and guidelines and resources when they ask, or resources when they say, that's the thing we really need. I like that, especially like I'm going to go back to what Latif said about cash, um, hard currency. If that's what the Afghan people ask for, why not at least try it, right? And then if it goes wrong, then you adjust. And I think um, the idea of ready, fire, aim, Going back to some 1970s, uh, I guess that would be the 80s, um, business school stuff. You can't always get it right, so let's adjust after we after we fire. Um, Latif, what would you say about uh, what would you say to someone that I want to help, but I don't know where like I don't know where to get started? What would you say? Yeah, that's I try to add on that. Like many people this time, especially call that. Oh, how could we help? 
And many of them, they think that they're a hero. They can do whatever they want. And that's like bring expectation. Expectation between America and Afghan who are in, in a, under suffering in Afghanistan. And especially someone called from America is an American man or woman called, oh, how could I help you? This like one sudden bring a big expectation. They can do everything now. And to show off like as a hero, and then you cannot do anything. It's bring like disappointed and you cannot help. And I always give uh, advice to my friends that who try to help to go like to Cindy, to Mark, to people are working already there. They know the culture. They know the people. They, you can go through that. Don't showing off yourself to Afghan or don't call inside Afghanistan. They try to help them uh, because they try to you know, bring harm and disappointed. I think one thing that I've learned from Afghans is that's different from Americans. We want to go in, drop our help, and then go somewhere else. But it's longevity mm. of knowing that we're always going to be here for you. I'm going to cry in a minute. <laughs> mm. But that you can count on us. And when people ask how they can help, it's, um, again, it's, it's relationships. That's what I have learned over all these years, that Afghans adore relationships. And so it's, it's being there for you always. Yes. I like what you said about the hero. That goes against being humble. It goes against asking someone, how can I help? It, you, can't, you can't be the hero when you want to be, I don't think. It's just a different mentality. And Cindy, you said something that uh, it, it does still keep me up at night. I struggle with it. But going to Ethiopia or wherever and telling people we're going to help and then failing. And you realize the failure has great impact. I think, and don't anybody hear this politically, but I think if you look at Afghanistan right now, it's on the failure side of the spectrum. I th we went in, we said we can help. We did a lot of things for a long time, and then we pulled out. My greatest fear in Ethiopia is providing help to these people. And then because I was an idiot or I didn't think through something, I pull out and people die. It's not as extreme, I don't think, as Afghanistan right now, but they'll, they can starve. And I'm not, I'm, I'm acknowledging their own human responsibility and, and I'm not patronizing. But some people are fighting for the basic needs, right, Harry, every single day. And so it terrifies me to let them down. And at the same time, I know I have to let God do his thing. But Cindy, when you think about Afghanistan and somebody says, why are you helping them? What's the big deal? They're on the other side of the world. It's a catastrophe. Why? For me and my, my husband personally, um, we're Christians and God has told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Even though they're across the earth, they are still my neighbor. Mm. And I'm going to love them just as much as I love people here in the inner city or my next door neighbor in Germantown. And 
that's what keeps me going back. It's the people. It's not the projects. It's not that the things that we can put a stamp on and make it look good, but it's the people. They're not objects. Right. So when I think about Afghanistan or Ethiopia or poverty down the street here in Memphis, I think maybe, Latif, you said this and it resonated with me. There are faces and there are stories behind each face and they're human beings and we need to help them. And so when I get tired of dealing with the bureaucratic crap that is Ethiopia and I suspect Afghanistan and heck, the army, right? The pure, unadulterated, bureaucratic, and I won't say it on the air, BS, makes me want to say, I'm out. I've been trying to help you people for 15 years, 20 years, and it's like I have to fight my way through the bureaucrats to help Sasina on the street. The heck with it. I'm out of here. I can just go hang out at my house, hit golf balls, and I'll give a few dollars here and there. But then I'm always reminded... And I keep, if you were to go look at the file folder in the other room, there's a picture of Sasina. Because when all the crap gets in the way, there's a face and a human that I want to help. And that's what you guys have reminded me from being a warfighter to being an Afghan to being someone that's trying to help in hospice care and leadership training. All those things are driven by human beings and faces. So we got to land the plane. Cindy, if you could have one to three takeaways that you want the listeners to get from this today, what would you say? I would say look into Afghanistan. See what the country's all about. Don't make assumptions of um, what you hear people say. Find out for yourself. Um, There are going to be Afghans storming the cities, refugees, Find a family and invest in them. Really invest as much as you would. I'm sorry. Longevity. There you go. As much as you would invest a baseball team for your son and go to practice two or three times a week and have games two or three times a week, you're going to invest in other people and love on them. That's good. Latif, what would you say, brother? I want to say about listening to the story and love them. And we expecting we will uh, expect a lot of refugees coming to Memphis and Tennessee. And that's my advice that please reach, reach out to them and l- just listen to them. If you cannot do anything, just listen to their story. They have a lot to say. And you just, just listen because... Many Afghan people are there. Till now, no one listened to them. I wrote down, listen, love, and respect. Yes. Probably a pretty good motto, no matter where you go in the world, right? Yeah. Harry, what would you say, one to three takeaways? So I'm going to abstract just a little bit, but I promise it'll it'll land. (laughs) Um, I just want to reiterate this idea that complex problems have no true one right or one wrong answer. They have a whole array of ways that it can go better and worse. And so that's important to remember when we are 
seeing headlines or observing things and tended to or want to tend to judge, you know, so-and-so is responsible for that failure or success. Um, it's usually not that simple. Uh, the second thing is that it's difficult to win or succeed if you don't have clear winning or success criteria. But in these kinds of complex problems, measuring the most important things is just really hard. So uh, give, give yourself some grace as you try to, when you wade into the bureaucracy and you think, you know, I'm, I'm wasting my time, I'm not succeeding. Uh, the ROI is hard to measure, but probably will be less hard over the long term. And that's, that's really the third point, play the long game, All right? It's, it's easy and it doesn't take much time to give a pile of cash. It takes a lifetime to build relationships and invest in that way. And in, I think too often we're tempted to look for quick wins, uh, which don't last, versus slow, plodding, not sure if this is working, long-term relationship and generational impact. Some of the principles in the book, Journey to Impact, particularly there's a chapter about warning signs. And as I've listened to all these insights about Afghanistan, a lot of these principles have jumped back into my brain. For example, the idea of the know-it-all, right? If you think about the United States and many of our allies going into Afghanistan in the early 2000s, there was certainly a lot of confidence that we could fix these issues, right? Maybe even some would say cockiness. But wherever we fell on that spectrum, we probably did not do a fantastic job of asking questions of the Afghan people and those stakeholders that had been in the country and been in the culture for a really long time working or had lived there and grown up there their entire lives, we could have done a better job listening, right? We could have done a better job of trying to understand the culture. Closely, I think, um, related to the know-it-all is the rich expert, right? Well, money does not necessarily equal expertise, right? And that was certainly the case with the United States and our allies over there. And I would even add that when you couple significant wealth with military power, that probably is not a fantastic way to get things done. I think also of the idea of, of a meandering lane ahead, right? You've seen that on a highway, and that's one of the um, principles in the book. And that gets back to defining your definition of success, right? Or what Harry called success criteria. And that never really happened in Afghanistan. And so as a result, strategic meandering occurred. There's also a chapter in the book called Get Off the Bench. And, and I'll try to, try to wrap up my thoughts with that. I'll close with that. Because it's easy to get discouraged by the failure or the lack of success. And, and I know I, for one, am certainly susceptible to paralysis because I want to have a perfect plan, right? I don't want to hurt people. So I don't do anything, right? I spend all my time planning and gathering data, but ultimately nothing ever gets done. 
but we have to get off the bench, right? And there's a certain amount of freedom in the idea of wicked problems that Harry talked about, those, those problems that don't have easily defined parameters, the problems that don't have clear right or wrong answer, they're more better or worse. And, and I think there's freedom because it, if you realize you're not going to get it perfect, then the best thing you can do is get started with a good plan, Right? Not a perfect plan. Because the sooner you execute a good plan, the sooner you can get started making positive adjustments as you get in the middle of it. So if I could add anything to what Latif and Cindy and Harry have said, it's this. Get off the bench. Get into the game. <laughs>